0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study.
1: This week we are in VaYakel Piku Day. We are in the combined uh, Parsha. We doubled the Parsha um, this week. They are separated out only when it is a leap year. Because then we need four extra Shabbatot, right? We need four extra Sabbaths. So then we split the double Parshiot apart and read them separately. But this year is a, is a time we read them together. Um, so the actual triennial reading bird, did you keep it in your head? 37.17. 37.17 right. is where the actual triennial break uh, is starting. The... Place we've been in talking about the Mishkan was that Moshe was given all of the instructions for building the Mishkan, right? So he's given that, um, and then he's coming now to to gather the Israelite people and tell them what's what they need to do and give them all of this instruction about building the Mishkan, about building the tabernacle. What transpired? What was the last building project they had? Right? The golden calf. So this was the biggest, you know, for us, our paradigmatic mythic moment of loss of trust, of faith, our moment of desperation, of anxiety, of where's Moshe? He's gone. Oh, no, we are leaderless. And out of that anxiety, out of that desire for something that's not being fulfilled, they turn to what's familiar. They turn to what they know. They turn to an image Uh, of God that is from Egypt, the calf, and they make the calf, and it's not good. (laughs) So this is what the people were engaged with out of anxiety, out of a a place of of fear, out of a place of lack, out of a place of I don't have what I want to have, like all those things that motivate us to reach for things that we Um, can get our hands on and our heads around quickly that have been for us representations of um, power, fulfillment, but that don't lead us to anything healthy and good. That episode follows immediately into this whole business of the instructions to build the Mishkan. So we go from one building project that was a disaster to instructions about a building project that is about a real, a real solution to the issue of how do we feel closer to the divine presence? How do we have a sense that the divine presence um, dwells among us? And in ancient Israel, this a portable shrine would have made sense. That that's how you do that, a place to bring offerings, right, a place from which the priesthood functions and keeps the people in right relationship with the divine. So we get Yucky Building Project and we get, here's the real, here's the real project of the community that will help the community, um, have a better relationship to their own highest ideals and it will represent for them their, their ideals in terms of...
2: they directing the projects, um, have the people realize the difference between the building of the Golden Calf and
1: the building of the uh, Rome. So you tell me, already from what we know from studying the Mishkan, studying the Tabernacle, what is the difference between the Golden Calf? Like, how do the people How do the people know? What are some of the differences that people will experience between the Golden Calf and the Mishkan? Well,
2: one is, with the Mishkan, we're getting instructions by god how to build it as opposed to on our own we're just doing it so that
1: so one of the biggest differences big, is big. that <coughs> the directions come from god they come through moshe somebody the people trust on a good day <laughs> we see what happens on a bad day um but they they Obstensibly trust the authority of Moshe enough to, if it comes through him, it's the closest they get to God because we remember they were flipped out about dealing with God, right? They sent Moshe as their emissary. We can't deal. You go. You go get it and you bring it to us and you tell us.
3: Also after the golden calf, there was a slaughter of people.
1: So presumably after the finishing of the Mishkan, there's no slaughtering right, of people. Right, I mean, maybe, they, maybe they got it's the idea. It's already better. <laughs> With everybody running around the camp
3: killing people, that the golden calf was not a good idea. Plus, didn't they have to drink it?
1: Didn't they they it indeed had to drink it. So I think they got the sense <laughs> got that was not the good one. So already this ends a little differently, right? <laughs> what else, Sarah?
2: The calf is a limited animal. Whereas the Mishkan uh, contains the ineffability of a God that cannot
1: be seen. Lovely. Beautiful. So the calf is like kind of this boom thing filled with itself that's very known to us from the natural world and is very, therefore, limited. It's one species of animal, right? One kind of animal... There it is. We know everything about this. We eat this. Yeah, but they came up with it. right? They we consume out. this. So that is certainly because out of there, they wanted something they could control. They wanted something they knew. They wanted something that was limited. They wanted something that they could consume and funny, they wind up actually consuming it, don't they? So drinking it, right? Moshe burns it and grinds it into powder and makes them drink it. You want you want something you can consume? No worries no worries done so so that's one and then what Sarah's lifting up is the contrast of the Mishkan the Mishkan itself delineates what space space Space. it delineates empty space and at the very center of that space we've talked about this before the very holiest of holy of holy intimate space what is there is an arc which is meant to delineate more space space and what's in that space are teachings that point to how to be in relationship to an unseen, limitless force that we call God. There's an- very different things that are being represented physically. And it's pretty clear that the people, when they're making their festival with the calf, they are... Dancing, and, well, yeah, we, we, we dealt with the word dancing last week, didn't we? So they are
3: Whatever. playing
1: <laughs> and eating and drinking, right? So, so everyone had access to the calf, right? Who has access to the Mishkan? The only, only the priest and only the high priest has access to the innermost place of the Mishkan, right? So, so that distance, right, that they can't even see, forget not seeing God, they can't even see what's in the Mishkan.
3: Also, uh, Aaron either made the calf or it popped out of a fire, depending on whether you believe him or yeah. not. Aaron, yeah. <laughs> right. But, no, but it was Aaron who made the golden calf, right? Mm-hmm. And the Mishkan is made by the people, is made by the community.
1: Nice. They contribute, and also they
3: build it. They have skilled builders.
1: So everyone contribute. I mean, presumably they contributed gold. That's right. To the golden cab. Um, of course, the story is that the women did not, and so, according to midrash, that's why women are not included in having to give to the Mishkan project. <laughs> that only men, right, were taxed mm-hmm. because. The women didn't give to the golden calf, but mm-hmm. right they so they were exempt from giving to the Mishkan, but they chose to give anyway, right? And they gave the, too much. the tradition so that that's the Nadiv lev? That's the that's the voluntary one. But we also get a half shekel, right? This is Shabbat Shkalim mm-hmm. because this is the Shabbat we read about the half shekel that was donated to build the Mishkan.
3: But it was also wasn't it. Like the only time in history <laughs> the Jews gave too much, and Moses had to say, "Stop giving."
1: Let's hope it's not the last time in history. Amen. Right, Amen. It should only be again in our day. Um, like tomorrow.
2: <laughs>
1: so the so in between this business of of making the golden calf and the instructions to make the Mishkan. We get and, and I'm going to violate our boundaries here of of uh, triennial reading because what we're getting is a repetition, right of of what we've seen as the instruction. So we're going to look at chapter 35. Go back to chapter 35. Moshe's just coming down the mountain in Kitisa, having gone up in order to receive the second set of tablets. Why does he need a second set? (laughs) Right. So, So he tore up the contract. Then when there is a reconciliation between God and the people, then Moshe goes back up the mountain. And God says, uh, now you carve. I gave you the other ones. I gave you the first ring. You, you buy the second ring and bring it up here. And so Moshe brings up the new tablets and uh, he's up there again for a while and then comes down at the end of Kitisa, at the end of last week's Parsha. He comes down and his face is radiating light. Not horns. Not, horns, not horns, but rays of light that get translated into Latin or Greek or whatever it is as horns of light. And so here we get now, right? We get Michelangelo's David with horns. All right. Huh? it wasn't being... Sorry. Yes, Moses. thank you. Um, so... A, A bad translation leads to interesting art. Right?
2: Right. The put on.
1: Notes that carne or can mean rays of light, or caron can mean horn. Right. So, do you translate it horns or rays? Well, when you're making art,
2: you can't really make a ray.
1: Well, you could. Anyway, so. So we get, so he's coming, he's just come down, he's radiating light, and we're about, he's about to impart to the people the instructions to build the Mishkan, and then, but between those, what do we get? We get verse 2, someone read 1 through 3.
3: Moses then convoked the whole Israelite community and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. On six days work may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your settlements on the Sabbath
1: day. All right, so we get right between the danger, the fatal danger of the golden calf, and the solution, the mishkan, we get an interesting thing. How was the calf made?
2: Melting
1: the fire. Fire. Right? And then the Mishkan, one of its central rituals, the altar, is all about fire. So between the fire of the calf and the fire of the Mishkan, the bad fire and the good fire, the right fire, we get no fire. Very interesting. We get, you shall make no fire. You shall take a sacred break from your firing, from your meddling, from your creating, from your producing, from your messing around with the world. You will not have any fire. So fire is, is a critical symbol of the ways that we engage with the world. Passion, right? The rabbis translate that fire on the altar right to the passion of, on the altar of the heart. So it's not a bad thing, necessarily. But without a time to stop meddling and a time to reflect and a time to become somewhat different, we can't tell always the difference between what fire we're kindling. Yes? Yes? So, it's very easy. They call the calf Yudhe right? They are worshiping God. They're just doing it, right, in a way and out of instincts and out of things that are not healthy, that are not good for them, that are not growthful. What is, is the ritual of the Mishkan. How do we know which one were Engaged in, right? As Israelites, as people. How, how do we know which ash, which fire we're dealing with and we're kindling? Shabbat is all about discernment, right? An opportunity to discern exactly that. So I want to look at the teaching. Of, this is the teaching of Rabbi Yael Shai uh, for this week, who I've been sharing with my meditation class.
2: And um, I just want to say that uh, it's not the fire that we can't have it's the kindling of the
1: fire so, so making fire
2: yeah. yeah so if we do it before Shabbat we can have a big bonfire no problem it's the kindling
1: yes and they would not have they would have had to keep tending and adding fuel to a big bonfire which they were not allowed to do so presumably figure out how to not have to deal with your fire for 24 hours, right? And if you remember, in this period, they're, they're being fed mana. So cooking fires would not have been right at the center of their daily experience. So it's leave your, leave your fire business alone for 24 hours.
3: There's a comment here that, uh, some rabbis have called the fire anger.
1: Interesting.
2: And then
3: anger cannot be kindled on Shabbat. Shalom B'ayit.
1: So...
2: I like to think of it as time out.
1: <laughs> a sacred time out. Yes? All right. Let's look at the teaching of Rabbi Shai. She notices, as I just summarized, under sacred pause, yes, that... In between the first, in between the fires of idol worship and the fires of creating a sanctuary, there is a silence that requires the Israelites to be with what is, to take a break, to kindle no fires. She talks about Shabbat, right, being countercultural and kind of a radical idea. Go to the next page. Knowing that Shabbat is this wonderful kind of a time for us. Why do we continue to resist? And let's be frank. We resist. We resist. How many of us stop at sundown on Friday and resume activity Saturday at sundown? We resist. Let's go further. Forget Saturday. Who here stops? (laughs) Right, happily for twenty-four hours, one day out of seven. How about three hours? <laughs> right, so right that we we resist this break, even though we know it's good for us. So I found her teaching interesting about. Um, she quotes this uh, post from Scott Dan Miller on the Huffington Post, and I read it, um, and he says that. It's because we're afraid of facing ourselves and the rawness of who we are. He writes, I am created in the image and likeness of God, yet somehow that isn't good enough for me. So I fill my Facebook feed and my calendar with self-important busyness to avoid just being. And it is not just ourselves who we're afraid of seeing in the void of unstructured time. It is the void itself. It is the nature of reality. It is a sense of emptiness and perhaps God itself. It feels terrifying and unknown. Of course, the irony is that in my experience, actually looking into that void and experiencing the emptiness leads to a reconnection so rich and powerful, it does feel like coming close to the divine. Which for me puts a whole new spin on the Mishkan being about space. Right? So... Emptiness. It terrifies us. It scares us to death to look into empty time. It scares us to death to look into the void. And that's the Mishkan. It's empty at its center. What's in there? Instruction. (laughs) About be empty. One day out of seven. That's your time ratio. You don't even have to think of it as days, but one to seven. No, one to six. I never was great at math. One to six is the ratio. For every six parts busy, there should be one part open, spacious, empty. For every six hours, one hour empty. Now you can break that hour up into, right, 20 minutes every hour you're working. Fine. However, that still doesn't add up to it. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we get your All oh, right. Thank you. But it's about, it's about a corrective that, that, that opens up enough space to change how we return to what we're doing, to what we're about. And it is a critical, component of how we're going to do what we do next. So then she quotes Darlene Cohen in her book, The One Who Is Not Busy, who agrees that the fear of emptiness keeps us busy. And she adds another dimension. She argues that we stay busy for the adrenaline rush and the short bursts of excitement that the drama brings us. (gasps) The client loved it. The deadline is met. Yes, we are alive, and we know it now. She continues, most importantly, the intensity distracts us from the slowly dawning suspicion that our life means nothing, that all our efforts have not brought us any closer to happiness.
0: Sounds like Shakespeare.
1: <laughs> right? Sounds like the conversation we had
4: with Emmett on our bike ride to school this morning. Say more. Mom, I just think, like, it doesn't mean anything. We're just specks of time in the universe. What does it all mean? It doesn't mean anything. Oh yeah. So.
2: And I had to. And you fell off your
4: butt. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no. And then I saw
2: her and I
4: sorry If confused. I hadn't been used to this kind of insight from my younger son, I might have. But this is not an uncommon thing with him. And so I said, "Yes, that is that's true, but we're here, so we, you know, it it means something to us while we're here. So." You know, making, helping other people you know, have, you know, people who don't have everything that we have and doing something for someone else can make your life miserable. <coughs> but he, um, you know, I, I guess I was thinking about him as an example of a person who builds in that one to six all through the day, <laughs> like three to three, really, three really to four, um, <laughs>
1: Yeah. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. The commandment <laughs> is at least one to six.
4: Is it at least?
1: At least. Three to three, okay.
4: So, anyhow, I mm-hmm. think that that is the way maybe when we pause and we look into that emptiness... Um, There's a there's a tendency to want to know what you're supposed to be looking for and what you should be achieving. Okay, it's Shabbat. What am I going to get out of this? Instead of what really is just kind of waiting and seeing what comes.
1: So what is the resistance to just waiting and seeing what comes? Why do why why are we like okay? I'm going to do Shabbat now. I'm going to get healthier and calmer. We're so
4: used to being in control of our days. I think for me that's what it is. Like. This is the schedule, okay? Shabbat now. Let's
1: what? You think it's just cause we're used sacred to it?
4: And prayerful
1: and How did it happen? It. it just happened? And so we're used to it? I
4: Maybe mean, it
2: happened because we didn't do Shabbat? I? I don't know. And we just got because 'cause you're that's like when I saw you riding this morning, my heart was like, Oh, I'm so jealous. <laughs> it's that moment of time you have with that
1: at you're riding to school <laughs> and it's so one and you got it right away because you said I have one more year. I'm like <laughs> mm-hmm. and So
2: that little time. That little window of time being with him, and that little because
1: what what happened in that little Shabbat bike ride that I know is a task, Mm -hmm. right? I get it. (laughs) Like you have to get him to school, you have to get him on time. It may not be the most pleasant, Lisa. (laughs) All the time, (laughs) your your fantasy aside, may not be like you know, but um, relaxing time. And and yet, right? So, So in this little Shabbat of time, what kind of conversation did you have with your son? Like far different from the kind of conversation when, where's your backpack? Where's your lunch? You know, like what kind of conversation happens? You know, what, what, what's able to happen in the normal intercourse we have with people and the amount of time and the kind and quality of time that we communicate with each other. There's not a lot of room for a conversation that says, I'm really today, Amy struggling with the meaning of it all. What, what, where does that conversation happen? In space. In the place where you have space. The where, you have have space. space right. where there's nothing else you're trying to achieve except peddling the next part of the journey together.
3: I think unfortunately, a lot of people when they think of Shabbat, they think of Shabbat is when you don't fill in the blank. And there's blah, 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 blah. And the purpose of not doing all that stuff is to make space to do the stuff that's important. And uh, many years ago, they used to give a holiday workshop here. Some of you may have taken it. Absolutely wonderful. And the teacher talked about making Shabbat. Shabbat doesn't happen. What you need to do is make space. And then as you say, say, okay, now... What is Shabbat really supposed to be? As the rabbis say, taste of paradise, of so the world to come. Or what do I do today that will enhance my life, my spirituality, my connection, my connection to God? So, again, for me, Shabbat—yes, there's the don't, 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 don't—but as you were saying, it is the then what that
1: is the most important. La <laughs> Shabbat to make, to do, right. to create Shabbat. Mm-hmm. Right, So that it's, there's activity involved, Mm -hmm. which is different from work. And anymore, we grownups are terrible at activity that doesn't have to do with production of some kind. We're terrible at play. So many of us have forgotten what it was we used to like to do when we didn't, do it in order to produce something, right? Or achieve something, or get something out of it, as Laura said. Rita? Uh.
2: I've belonged to many synagogues over the years, and one rabbi told us that they would happily cancel Friday night services if they could only guarantee that the family would have a wonderful Shabbat dinner at home and sit and relax and be with each other. Mm-hmm. They would rather do it that way, but it's very hard to engineer yeah. that. But that would really be making Shabbat, the idea of being together and in this non-rushed evening. So that's kind of an interesting yep. way of looking at Sharing that, that kind of time
1: and... And conversation and, right? So what this teacher was saying is that the
3: important thing is not what you don't do on Shabbat, but what do you do? Okay. And how do we, in terms of making Shabbat, how do we start to find the space first to do one thing and then another thing and ultimately to fill that
1: space with Shabbatness? So look at what she's gonna say, which is to Bert's point is, Shabbat of everyday life, right? Shabbat also gives us the taste of spaciousness so that when we return to work, we know how to do so mindfully. So immediately following this don't make any fire and don't do anything comes, and now here's a huge building project, right? It's not like, okay, and then slowly consider and reflect upon, right? It is boom, 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 here are the instructions to the last detail, and it's a massive building project. The point of Shabbat is not to then like, Slowly relax into Monday, Sunday and Monday. It's, you know, so that when you come back to, you do so differently. We do so more mindfully. And she says, unlike the utterly mindless creation of the Golden calf in last week's Parsha, every movement and micro movement in the creation of the Mishkan is done with attention and care and most movingly to her heart. And she notes that in this parsha, the word heart is mentioned 14 times, right? That's crazy. Something's repeated that many times in one Torah portion. We know, right? We've, we've looked into how words are used in Torah. That's a lot in one Torah portion. So that the way they did the Mishkan, the way they attended to that work was with heart, which with, it was with attention and intention and care. On the next page, they're working hard, but they are working wholeheartedly. End of the first paragraph on the last page. They are deeply invested. They are putting love into every gift, every act of spinning, weaving, constructing, measuring, and finalizing. This is the essence of working mindfully. What would it mean if we all worked this way? If we all moved this way through the world? Paying attention to everything we are doing with all of our heart, even when it was difficult, even when it was happening quickly. And she quotes again Darlene Cohen calling this simultaneous inclusion. I love that. I love that. So in the middle of my frenetic, oh my God, right? right. What if we came even into that with a different kind of attention and intention and and heart and spaciousness, um, what would that do to how we engage with each other, with all of the many things that we're taking on, um, right? What, What if we did that when we give the gift of our attention to everything, including sending an email, saying hello to someone in an elevator, paying our bills, eating our dinner, what if we could touch the spacious nature in every activity? So some kind of practice of Shabbat of both stopping the craziness and as Bert said, being about things that fill us, things that relax us, things that rejuvenate us, things that, that get us in touch with the kid that just love to interact with the world or ponder. What is the meaning of it all? Right, so that practice then enables us to come back to emails and paying our bills and eating dinner and saying hello to somebody in the grocery store line with a different kind of attention and heart and spaciousness.
2: Better use of our time because a lot of us spend time worrying about how to get it all done rather than doing it. I I wonder how it... um comes into the, you
4: know fruition when you know you work if you work on this if you're mindful of this but you, we operate in family units you know and how do you by example spread that to your family unit so that you model some things so that your child or your parent or your spouse can also find that because if you're doing that and you're trying to make Shabbat in whatever way that you make it, and everyone around you is kind of going cuckoo with other stuff, mm-hmm. then it does become about the don't. We don't do, you know, put your cell phone mm-hmm. phones off and we'll, you know, mm-hmm. and then it's no fun for anyone.
1: So, so how
2: do
4: you spread that and share that when you operate in a community, not just your yeah. own mm-hmm. silo? So
1: some of it is, I think, about creating the opportunity for not so much don't, but here's what we're gonna do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Cause I can, I can tell you, I do not get Shabbat on Shabbat. I'll just be frank. Can you edit that part out of the podcast? (laughs) I don't get Shabbat on Shabbat. I don't see my family. I work all day. So, so, but I'm committed to Shabbat as a as this practice. So Sundays, we don't unless I have a funeral or an unveiling or a baby naming. We don't schedule anything as a family, right? If if Ellie wants to go be with a friend, it can't happen in the morning. It can't happen until, you know, the afternoon. So that we wake up together, we have coffee and breakfast and time together that is completely unstructured. How we use it, sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's like, okay, well, I guess I'll see you later when you get home from here, you know, and she's on the thing playing. But we have time where it's not scheduled. What we do in it varies. And so there's no musts about it. And I think with without that we we are disconnected from one. I can feel it by the end of the next week if we've not had <coughs> that time. I can feel the difference in our interact. Is it hot in here? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep.
2: It's seventy five right. degrees. in here. I just noticed that too. But how been blowing.
1: I don't understand how there's blowing and it's well like this. Okay. So um yeah. no, no kindling a fire um. <laughs> I know who wrote that, I know exactly how old they were. Um, And it wasn't a man. And it wasn't a man. I can tell the difference in our interactions when we've not had, and not even that day, but like moments, times of Shabbat, that bike ride daily. For me it's with Ellie at night when I get home. She's now old enough to be up, you know, when I get home, even if she's in bed, you know, reading. So that's our Shabbat. Time, because there's nothing else going on, it's just us. And if we don't have that, what about with ourselves? Where do we get that with ourselves? So that, so that we come back to relationship with ourselves and everything we're about differently. How do we create those times of spaciousness and rejuvenation so that we can come back to what we're engaged in differently? This for me, I think is one of the most critical teachings of our time this whole business about busyness, those two, the Huffington Post piece that I read, and then I went and read more about Darlene Cohen's work, you know, and that it's a disease. We, we stay busy and now we're so habituated that we don't even know how to have, you know, open, unstructured time. And I'm not just talking about work for money. I'm talking about Retired people are some of the most busy people. You talk to a retired person, how are you doing? You know, I'm so busy. You know, and it's like, so we're all answering, we're so busy. With what? Are like with, um and so she there was an interesting part of the study where they put people in a room and they told them the study was about X, Y, and Z, and that they would be called in to answer a questionnaire, you know, soon, as soon as the, the experiment just could get to them. But the real experiment was what they did in the waiting room. <laughs> And there was nothing in the waiting room and they, it it was absolutely uniform. Everyone had 15 minutes to wait. And the only option was something that you could push that would give yourself a voluntary electric shock. (laughs) Remarkably, a lot of people opted for the shock. Instead of sitting for 15 minutes with nothing to do no stimulation no outside it right they shocked themselves voluntarily cuz pain physical pain was better than the existential pain of facing the void of facing the emptiness of facing ourselves of right wow if that doesn't say something about where we are right now, I don't, I don't know what does. Fifteen minutes, right? When I told people that we did this, we do did this wise aging training, and like it was that reflective listening where you listen to someone talk for three minutes and then you you sit in silence, and then the other person talks for three minutes and you sit in silence. It was amazing how many people struggled to fill that silence. So then, then we had some moments, of, okay, and after the whole group shared and whatever, we sat for three minutes in silence. It almost killed some people. Mm-hmm. And at the end, when they shared, they were like, that was the hardest part of this whole thing wasn't anything I shared, anything I disclosed, even though they were crying. That was fine. The hardest part was the sitting in silence for three minutes. And I said, well, you know, I do mindfulness practice at the synagogue and we sit for 20 to 40 minutes. And they were like, that, that, that would do me in. That, that, that would kill me. And I was like, what? Like, we are that uncomfortable with spaciousness and emptiness and room to even explore what would fill us, right, in a, in a good way, so many of us. And, and so many of us trying to be in relationship to people who are in that place, right? Who are so busy, you can't even catch them to. Like, you know, sometimes I, I know this is how my partner feels. You, uh, okay, see ya.
2: <laughs>
1: but, you know, how do you even create that when one person is in such a, you know, different relationship to busyness, even if you've created that for yourself? That's great, but how do you, how do you do that when you're trying to be in relationship to somebody who, who isn't right there or, or able to do that? So I don't want to hammer it too hard. Um, <laughs> this idea of heart, I loved. So uh, looking at a piece by Michelle Rose Young, she writes, our tradition states, and this is from the Talmud, you don't have it.
2: <laughs>
1: Do not stand too long. For standing too long is harmful to the heart. From Baba Batra, the Talmud. A heart that is not used, one that is not active, and thus becomes insensitive to the needs and pressures of the outside community, deteriorates, and can no longer contribute to the health of the entire body. And she goes on about some other quotes from our tradition about heart. She says, but it's a Yiddish saying that I believe encapsulates the meaning of the heartfelt actions described in our parsha. I can't read Yiddish. Mm-hmm. But I'll try, Sarah will correct me, and so we will blanch it. Decliner hearts nemt yes. arum <laughs> de gracevelt. Sounds
2: good.
1: Yes. <laughs>
2: uh, you read it very
1: understanding. Yeah. Oh good. Thank you. Right? Well, Decliner hearts. arum hey, de gracevelt. Hey, yeah. The
2: small heart, the heart which is small, embraces the whole world.
1: The heart, and this does not mean metaphorically, this is literally. The heart that is small, yet, you know, it's kind of implied, embraces the whole wide world. The heart is indeed small, just the size of a fist. But it helps us cope with the many challenges that we face in our communities. Like this hand tucked inside each of us, the heart has the power to strike like a fist, or to gather and embrace like an open hand. It is up to each of us to learn how to move our heart to embrace the world. It's a wonderful image of right, there's this fist sized thing in our chest. And is it going to be used that way? Or, or hardened, right, by ossification, by not being used, right? Or is it going to be an open Fist, an open hand, and in that sense, able then to embrace the whole world. And I think that's that's the point of placing this teaching, this practice, this commandment, this this your life depends on it commandment, right here between two kinds of busyness, two kinds of activity, so that we come to the second one and not go back to the first one. But we need that space in the middle to determine are we going to be about building calves or are we going to be about building sanctuaries of our lives and of our homes and of our bodies and ourselves. The teaching of Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artson points to the fact that our people were somewhat known for complaining I know that You may disagree with me, <laughs> but, I would. With uh, <laughs> but <Okay>. you <laughs> might argue with me. Uh, but uh, right, we could characterize our people as somewhat rebellious and complaining uh, in the desert. And he points out, at, talking about our portion, dealing with the instructions, instructions and implementation of the building of the Mishkan. Not coincidentally, there are no complaints no rebellions, no strife recorded during any one of those chapters of the Torah dealing with the instructions or the building and erecting and celebration of uh, the consecrating of the Mishkan, right? As the Midrash points out, you find that the whole time they were occupied with the instructions and work of the Mishkan, they did not grumble. What a momentous observation, once the Israelites were needed, once their lives were made significant by a consequential project, their fetches and complaints evaporated. The Israelites had complained in reality, says Rabbi Artzen, because they felt superfluous and insignificant. It appeared as though God and Moses didn't need them, as if they were extraneous spectators of a private affair. Work on the Mishkan gave them a way of meeting a divine need of serving their God and their community at the same time. We all face the same challenge our ancestors confronted. How to lend significance to our time here on earth, Emmett. How to make a positive difference for our loved ones, our community, our heritage, and all humanity. God saw that human beings need to be needed that we rise to the expectations others place on us and we grow into the image others hold out as ideal. The task of resting meaning out of existence, of fashioning purpose out of mere being, is the great challenge of being human and the great gift of Judaism. By holding out to us the opportunity to, he says perform mitzvot, in our language it might be too, Right? Behave in the world in ways that increase holiness and wholeness and peace, um, repeatedly, right? Every day, all day. Then we erect a mishkan of deeds, a structure of purpose and holiness that can launch our souls on a flight of discovery and of fulfillment. There's the answer to your son.
2: <laughs>
1: the answer to the question each of us asks when we're given too much time in a waiting room and go for the shock. Um, because, because we're trying to hold that question of what what does give it meaning, like what does shift it from merely being to an existence with purpose and and with meaning, and that, that that's what I love his image. That's what the mishkan is that we build. Each of us, right, is is serving. Is like you said to your son, how do we even take care of those around us who need us right now? Because we need to be needed. We need purpose. We need to grow into the image that, that people who love us hold us to, right? They think we can be our best selves. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, just walking through the office, I said, where is my Bible? What is wrong with me? I've forgotten it for the third time. And Carol White rounds the corner and says, no negative self-talk, Rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> Some people think we're actually capable of like living into <laughs> our best possible selves. Like when that expectation is lifted for us, we have then, right, the encouragement to, to grow into it. Oh right. I could be somebody who doesn't do negative self-talk. Really? Oh right. Cause you teach that all the time. <laughs> all
4: right. And the first step is being mindful
1: and aware and catching it. Exactly right. And continuing to teach it, we most need to learn. So this uh, last quote uh, that I love, um, Rabbi Rami Shapiro is quoting Rabbi Arthur Green. And he says that he's teaching that the Mishkan, the point of the Mishkan, was actually an antidote to the golden calf. That the whole, the whole building project was because God learned something with the incident of the calf. If you don't give them something to be about, if you don't give them a mishkan to build, they'll build a calf. Give them something lofty, ideal. Give them something of value and of meaning to be about building, and they'll be fine. Like
2: teenagers. <laughs> that, that was my question in the beginning. How do they know the difference?
1: So this is, give them something communal, something instructive, something positive, something good, something holy to be engaged in, and they'll be okay.
4: I think sometimes you know the difference yourself anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, not that fun for the sake of fun isn't important, but there is a balance Right? So you could say, like, this, you know, the cap, it was the party, it was we're party, we're drinking, we're having an orgy, like, whoopee, what does it all mean in the end? Like, it's not, it's not communal, it's not sacred, it's just... You can go out like every night. I remember thinking, I don't know if I'm ready to have kids yet. Let's just go out a lot and have fun. It took one night of like, that was kind of an empty feeling when that was all done. So that, so I
1: think that's part of the key is what is the experience afterwards? Is it, okay, now I feel fulfilled. Now I feel like my life has purpose and meaning or are you like, okay, now I'm going to get that shopping bill. Next one. You know, like I shouldn't, you know, like there's not a good, there's not a, and I don't mean good like happy fun. I mean, there's not a growthful, satisfied, satisfied feeling of okay that answered some of my question about emptiness that I wanted to be about something, and now I feel good about myself. Like I don't feel we don't feel that after we've done a golden calf mm-hmm. engagement. David?
5: Amy, I, I'm sort of struck with the early comment you made about what's inside the Mishka you said that inside this
1: is nothing. Well, and There's stuff that points to not yeah, nothing. Yeah. But I think if, if, you, if you sit here as a
5: group and look at a golden calf, you're struck with the golden calf. You think about the golden calf. You're preoccupied with what it is, why it is, where it is, what, what does it mean? If you sit here and you're stuck with nothing, if you're insightful, you must start to reflect on mm-hmm. what things mean. Not so much the communal act of building the fish but the fact that you have to stop and think of what really matters. And there's nothing there for you to focus on except what's
2: inside of you, what you're thinking about. If you can take that time, if you can
5: put the cell phone down, if you can put the iPad down for 10 minutes and just think. Isn't that what this is also saying? hundred percent? If there's an object, you focus on the object. They have nothing, you must focus on what's inside of
1: you. So the Shabbat teaching, right? Yeah. Yeah, and the point of the Mishkan is that you're drawn to the beautiful colors of the Mishkan, and when you know what's inside, it's that whole encouragement to be with that emptiness of reflection.
2: Maybe they had to have a calf in order to appreciate the opposite, and in fact, you know, when you read philosophy books, If everything was great and beautiful and happy, you wouldn't even notice it. You have to have the contrast in life to be able to appreciate one versus the other. So maybe they really needed that calf to move forward.
1: So you think slavery would have done that for them. (laughs) Right? So it seems like we even reach beyond the negative that we needed to compare the positive to. We still go for the shock right? rather than sit with the emptiness.
0: So there's a couple of interesting things here. You mentioned the word heart. The calf was built in chapter 32. Lev. Uh-oh. <laughs> so Gorgeous! But the the calf was actually built by Aaron. He casts the mm-hmm. Whereas the Mishkan is a group project that's done by mm-hmm. everyone and actually incorporates elements of the individual's identity. So whereas the calf was actually a creation of Aaron, the Mishkan is a creation of everyone incorporating their identity and they're much more likely to pay heed to it and respect it and intend it in a way that they might not have done so. With
1: the right, because they said to Aaron, make it for us. Right. Do it for us. That's right. We don't care what it is, just make it for us. And presumably he would not have made the Statue of Liberty. He's, presumably, he's not going to make something that's unfamiliar to them, right? So I think the teachings around, it's familiar, it's what they know, you know, is, are still, are still really instructive. And that's exactly what the tradition says about Shabbat Shkalim, about it. Everyone had to contribute, because everyone had to be able to look at the Mishkan and said, and say, it's mine right. too, I'm in there somewhere. My mother's, you know, ring is melted down into one of those, you know, curtain rods, you know. and... That that was critically important about the whole communal nature of the building project and that it was doing that together and everyone represented in it that makes it redemptive. The rabbis go so far as to say it makes it redemptive of the calf.
0: And so nowadays I walk into the synagogue... And I, I struck this because like, although I did have my apartment mitzvah <laughs> welcome home. You know, every you know, you walk up the stairs, and you know, everywhere you go, there's a little plaque saying you know, so and sos it's a non of so and sos But so in that sense, everyone, you know, it's obvious that everyone has contributed. To this finish, you know.
1: Right. So have, having ways that we represent communal participation. So David wanted to say something else. I'm yeah, just sort of
5: struck with the question of how do you make it relevant to kids if the, if the Hmm. idea is to look inside yourself and find yourself. That's almost
2: an impossible task for a child. They're not attuned to that yet. It only takes people that have grown and suffered through
5: life's traumas when they start thinking about what really matters, you know, and yet you want to instruct the kids to but,
1: start. I think there's different levels. levels. so. Reflecting on you know what things mean and blah 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 yeah that's a sophisticated philosophical like adult mind. However, children have an innate capacity when given the space and time to build a rich inner life. They are motivated by if I take this and put it with that, what happens? Right? They're they're motivated by curiosity, by what ifs, by imagination, by huh? I wonder why you they wonder. All that stuff that we strip away from them as we run them from one activity to another. Because that that inner capacity for awe, for curiosity, for wonder, for imagination, for what if, is what then becomes the adult asking, what if I decided to do my life a little bit differently? What if this... Illness is here, you know, to...
5: So children feeding this might look at this and say, you know, no play dates, no activities, nothing. You're going to sit in your
1: room and draw. That's for, it. for one kid, for another I kid, mean, it may be climbing a tree. For another I mean, kid, it's a play date where they engage together with, what if we took this? And you should see what, you know, the kitchen and the bathroom looks like when that's done. And, but let them just... Have unstructured time. So some of it alone, for sure. Let them get bored. Oh, my God. Let them get bored. Because that builds our capacity for, huh, I wonder why, you know, like...
2: Linda? And just sort of... We were talking about the synagogue, the building and everything. When we were planning the building, and one of, one of the committees that I was on was trying to figure out how to acknowledge the fact that people... Contributed in various ways. And another whole group in there said, we shouldn't have any kind of signage or anything right there. And Stephen said, Rabbi Rubin said, but it's important to have some sort of signage. It doesn't have to say X person gave, you know, $100,000. But when your children and your grandchildren and their children come into this building, they'll know that it was an important enough to you, to the builders at the time, to build this building for future generations that they will then incorporate that importance in their own lives
1: and the other thing I remember him saying about it is it's important that everyone every child, every young person who walks into this building sees names so that they know it was built by people Mm -hmm. too often, right, it's institutions and they're just kind of abstract they just got there Right? You know, and that one of the instructions of putting names up on the wall is to say people brought their shkalim. They brought their resources and built this place. It was people who did it. It didn't just get here. It didn't just drop from the sky. And that, like you said, that they incorporate, oh, so someday I might need to be a builder or, uh, uh, exactly. So this, this, this idea that the mishkan itself comes to be a tikkun, comes to be a repair, a, uh, an active teshuva, communal teshuva for the calf, for Aaron, go make something for us, you know, and we have to come together and then build the antidote to that together. And it takes every one of us to do that. And that that's the point of the Mishkan is to kind of be this this teshuva and what I like about it is this quote from Rabbi Arthur Green. The insight that guilt is the great impediment to true religious life is one that was well known to Hasidic masters beginning with the Baal Shem Tov himself. Among the most essential innovations of Hasidism is the insistence that expressed is that is expressed here that teshuva return to God really does work and that the one who returns is fully renewed in God's presence. The real task is to be sure that our witness goes forward, not interrupted by our own sense of inadequacy to the task. If we wait until we are perfect to attest to God, we will never do our job. In other words, the Mishkan was an act of self-confidence building for a people that could easily have quit because they were so ashamed of how far they had fallen away from the ideal, the right relationship with the divine, right? Our own best selves, however we want to talk about that. And that that the point of the Mishkan is give them something to show them they can be Otherwise, they can do otherwise and that it's possible to come back and to fix it. And that we shirk a certain, we won't engage with fixing it if we're so convinced we're inadequate and we're not up to the task. And so God gave them the Mishkan project to be about to say, see, you can make this right and we can be back in harmony. We can be back in Relationship and Rabbi Rami Shapiro says about that—that's amazing. Apparently, like those who looked at this, talking about Mishkan taking up so much of the book and the that teaching that the sin of the golden calf um, was actually an opportunity to teach Israel how to how to return—is is an amazing interpretation. Most of us don't do anything, he says, as dramatic as building a golden idol. But many of us sometimes feel like we're not going anywhere. We're not growing or feeling any sense of spiritual wholeness or relationship with the Holy One. The Sphad met says, keep trying and never let yourself believe that you are unworthy of a relationship with God. That's not to say living your life in the light of God is easy. After all, the Israelites had to build the Mishkan with great effort and sacrifice and attention to detail. No less would be expected of anybody trying to repair a broken relationship. The extraordinary promise of the end of the book of Exodus, and this is the end of the book of Exodus, is that broken relationships can be healed and broken souls can again be made whole with God.
0: You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California.